So we're back in Galatians again, and I uh, told you way back um, that this is going to be a long ser- series. We're in week uh, 13, and uh, please don't check out. Please keep digging into God's Word. There's a lot here, a lot here. And I, and I say that because I know this week where I'm going, and it's pretty straightforward. Next week, we get to the end of chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. That's a difficult passage. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read that. And I have no idea what God wants me to do with that passage yet. Um, So please, if you could join in praying this week that God shows me what he wants me to do with that passage. It's in the word of God for a reason. I would covet your prayers this week. Um, I'm seriously thinking of kind of breaking it up and doing 21 to 31 in one part of the service next week and then covering 1 through 15 of chapter 5 as we turn the corner and to get really practical in the book of Galatians. So I just covet your prayers as I prepare um, for this week. All right, changing gears, start with an illustration or a story uh, for this week. So it's a hot summer day in southern Florida, and a little boy decided to go swimming um, in an old swimming hole behind his house. In a hurry to dive into that cool water, he ran out the back door. He left behind his shoes, his socks, and his shirt as he went into the pond. He flew into the water, not realizing as he swam towards the middle of the lake that an alligator was swimming towards the shore. And they were on a collision course for each other. His mother, standing by the window, sees what is happening. And as they got closer and closer, she runs out that front door and she runs and she yells at her sons as loudly, her son as loudly as she could. Hearing her voice, he makes a U-turn as he hits the middle of the pond and he starts swimming towards his mother. But it was too late. Just as he reached the shore, the alligator reached him at the same time. From the dock, his mother grabbed his arms. And the alligator grabbed his legs. And a great tug of war took place. The mom's passion to hold on to her son and the alligator hungry began a great tug of war. But she would not let go. A farmer happened to drive by at that time and heard all his screaming and the commotion. So he jumped out of his truck, grabbed his gun, and he shot the alligator. Remarkably, After a few weeks in the hospital, the boy was about ready to get out of the hospital. He made an amazing recovery. So the local newspapers and reporters have heard this story. So one of the reporters comes to visit him at the hospital. And as he's telling this story, the reporter says, Hey, can I I see, see your scars? So the boy pulls up his pants leg and shows him the scars where the alligator's teeth were. But then the boy pauses. And he says, don't you want to see my other scars? And the reporter, from what? And he pulls up his sleeve of his arm. And there on his wrist are scratches and claw marks where his mom had held on so deeply. And he said, I am more proud of these scars than these scars. Because my mom held on to me and she would not let go. So in today's passage, we'll see Paul pulling hard on the Galatians pulling hard on the believers in those churches in Galatia that are starting to slip away. And he's saying, I'm not going to let you go. He desires that they live out of their new identity, that they live out of their identity, that they are sons and daughters and heirs and adopted children of the Most High God. 
and he pulls hard so that they don't slip away. He does not want them to let go of the gospel. And he pulls hard. So let me ask you, is there anybody in your life that is pulling or has at times pulled on you to say, you know what? What you're doing is stupid. Come back to the freedom in Christ. There's somebody that pulls on you when you're walking away. Or maybe you're pulling hard on somebody else. Don't stop. The gospel is worth pulling hard for. So we'll see Paul do that this morning. So stand with me as we read verses 8 through 20 of Galatians. And we're going to read this out of the ESV version. It says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What the... Your blessedness. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in language of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. There's our key verse for the whole series of Galatians right there. In the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's my passion as your shepherd to see Christ formed in every one of you. Let's pray. So, Father, we've been walking through Galatians, week 13 now, verse by verse. Please don't let this get old. Make it fresh as we read it again and again. And this week, may we see the passion of Paul not to let go of these Galatian believers. May we have that same passion as we pull other people or as we have sometimes have to get pulled. May we respond with a heart that's tender. So, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you because you are my rock who never leaves and never moves and you are my redeemer, which we just sang about. Thank you, God. And we pray in your precious name. Amen. Please take a seat. So we're going to spend about 12, 13 minutes just walking through the context um, verse by verse of this passage. Um, there's, there's really not a lot of 
new things here, so I'm going to kind of move through this quickly. And then I have about 20 minutes of, I think, a lot of great application this morning. I'm excited to share with you. So we ended last week with these words from, from Paul. Passionate words. Anaya just got back from camp this week, and she said all week they're talking about heirs of God. So it fits right where we're living. Read this passage with me again. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's true for the Galatians as it is for us today in the 21st century. And if we're a son, and if we're a daughter of the living God, then our spirits combined with Jesus' spirit that makes us come of the Holy Spirit, that makes us come alive. And we learned last week that we know we are children of God because our spirits cry out, Abba, Father. Papa, Father. I know you love me. I know you're, you're my, I'm your heir. And it just resonates within us. So in our passage for today, Paul begins by saying, Don't you remember, formerly when you did not know God, we have to remember where God brought us from, what he brought us through, where we were before we knew Jesus as our personal Savior. We need to remember that. And in Ephesians 2, Paul is telling that church the same thing, the church in Ephesus. He, he spends a couple verses in Ephesians talking about where they had come from, how they used to be separate from God. And then he says this in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When we forget who we were before Christ, we lose the wonder of our salvation. When we forget that God has set us free, we live as entrapped and as enslaved people. We cannot forget. It's a theme throughout the whole Word of God. I had like five examples here, but I challenge you to go home and look at how God reminds us to remember, to remember. But now, verse 9 says that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. I, I love how Paul does this. Paul would have had a scribe pinning most of his books. There's spots where we know Paul wrote and some capital letters and stuff. But, so I want you to imagine that Paul is talking this out, and the scribe is writing it down. And he says, now that you have come to God, he's talking to the Galatians church, well, actually, he says, rather to be known by God, there's a huge difference here. That's what it really is, that God knows you. And he wants you to get to know him. That, that's just great insight by Paul. You know God. We have had knowledge of God. But God wants you. He knows us. And that changes that relationship that we have with him. It changes it from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge. That the God of the universe knows every one of us. Every single one of us. He knows your stories. He knows where you have come from. And he knows who you are now. He knows what stands in the place of you becoming fully formed in Christ. He knows what you need to lay down. He's just asking you, will you trust me? Will you trust me as you go through this process? So because we are known by God, Paul, Paul says, how can you turn back? 
How, how can you do that? How can you even begin to think about going back to something that does not benefit you? How can you go back to the elementary principles of the world, which we talked about last week, whose slaves you want to be once more? Like, come on, church. Why would you do that? You've been there before. Why would you set up a life of performance where you fail and fail and fail? Jesus has set you free. You're his children. You don't have to perform anymore. You can get off the hamster wheel, Paul is saying. My kids don't get up every morning and, and have to do, have eight things that they have to do so that they prove that they're my children. Now, there's probably more than eight things I like them to do, but it doesn't prove that they're my children. I don't say, I was sort of thinking, get rid of you, Easton. <laughs> I know your last name is Vanderswag, but I'm thinking I'm going to go to the courthouse on Monday and change it. But now that you have set the table, you picked blueberries yesterday, you washed your sisters for two days when we were gone in Chicago, you washed my truck, you didn't yell at your sister, you actually cleaned your room, I think I'll keep you for one more day. And I'll see how you do on Tuesday. Sound like a deal? <laughs> yeah, right. But, but, but many people live that way. They perform for God. Paul's like, why would you go back under that? Your sons, your daughters, your heirs in Christ, you're adopted by the Father God. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You're doing all those things and all these festivals. Hey, great job with that. The Jews are doing that. Galatians, you don't have to go under that. Now, if, if you're in church long enough, I think many of us have seen this. There'll be people that come into the church at times and say, well, you've got to do this festival and you've got to celebrate this. And those are good things. But Christ has set us free from that. We're free. Paul says, I have to be honest. I'm a little worried about at this point. Verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. We see this whole idea of laboring often with Paul. Referencing how hard he's working. He probably doesn't have a clue what labor is and how tough. But he's, he's using that as an analogy of this is what I'm doing. So I've labored in, uh, in vain over you. So now we'll see Paul change his pitch a little bit. Brothers, sisters, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. So Paul's like, remember when I was with you? He's going back. I did not have you eat as a Jew, even though I was a Jew. I sat with you. I hung out with you. But I didn't put that stuff on you. I was a top-notch Pharisee before I met Christ. But I didn't bring that stuff with me and make you do all that stuff. You, and because of that, you did me no wrong. We were friends. You accepted me for who I was. The fact that you have defected now, that you're being pulled away from the gospel that I share, it's not personal. You're not doing me wrong. You're doing God wrong. Your relationship with God is suffering. You're not doing me wrong. This is not about me. It's about God. I'm just Paul the messenger. So don't you remember when I first came back to you? Keep going back with me. Because in 13 he says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. 
We don't know what that ailment is. We don't know if it's a sickness or a disease or if Paul got beat up really bad for the gospel, which he did many, many times. But what we do know is this. It was so significant, this ailment, that whatever it was, Paul says in verse 14, and though my condition was a trial to you, it was hard for you. When, when, when I showed up, you had to care for me. I put extra burdens on you. But yet, you did not scorn me or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Those are strong words. This is how the, the people, when they heard the gospel for the first time, they're like, they looked right over that ailment and all the trials that it caused and said, Jesus. And we're going to come back to that, so please hold that in your mind. Hold that in your mind. Verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness, of the kindness that you have extended to me when I was with you? I no longer see it. It, 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 it is gone. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And that's just a, 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 a saying. It's like, I would give my left arm for that girl or something like that. They're saying, you, you would have gouged your eyes out for me. Now, some people say that Paul had an eye problem. So that, and they wanted to help. That, that could be the trial. And he's kind of maybe referencing that as well. But he was saying, I don't get it. You guys would have done extreme things for me. But that's not going to happen anymore. You've, you've turned. So I have to ask you, verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I told you how to become right with God. Now you're defect, defecting and you're, and you're pulling back. I pointed this out to you now, and now I'm your enemy. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. He's talking about the Judaizers here, the people that are telling them the false gospel. These people from Jerusalem have said a lot of nice things to you. They make you feel good about yourself, but for, for no good purpose. It's just music in your ears. It doesn't do you a bit of good. It's not helping you. It's hurting you. It's pulling you from what matters most. What they really want to do, their, their real intentions, they want to shut you out. They want to keep that gap between Jews and Gentiles until the age to come. Because this is all about the Jews right now. We're the people of God. And they can't get over that. Even if a Gentile believer would have got a Gentile would have accepted Christ and they would have gone to the temple, there would still have been barriers where Gentiles could not cross. So Paul's like, they just want to shut you out. That you can make much of them. They don't, they don't, they don't care about you. Verse 18. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Who likes to be made much of? You know, it's good when people talk highly of us, when, when, when people say things. So it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I'm present with you. It's good when someone's kind to you, either in person or when you're off. And Paul was off at this time. And then our key verse 
my little children, for I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. For Paul, the greatest pastoral thing that he could do was tell them truth so that Christ could be formed in them. To break down those barriers, to pull at them as hard as he could so that Christ could be formed in him, in them. He labored over them. He, 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 they had intimacy with him. But nothing mattered more than for Paul than seeing them become fully formed in Christ. That's the heart of a pastor. A heart of a shepherd. That's my heart for you. Every one of us. And then verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed by you. I know I'm writing a little hard. I'm stepping on the gas a little bit, Paul says. I'm leaving scars as I pull on you. But I'm doing it because I care. I'm doing it because I love you. There's nothing sweeter than the real gospel. I want to make sure you're for, fully formed. For us, we might say, I'm discipling you as you become more like Christ. But Paul says, I have to be honest. I'm perplexed. I'm struggling. Anybody that's done ministry can relate, right? Some of you have a family member that you try to help and you try to pull along and you see some progress and then off they go. Or, or others have spoken truth to you maybe and a wall comes up. And Paul's like, I'm perplexed that this is happening to the Galatian believers. So there's a text for this morning. 8 through 20. So I want to pause here. If you remember last week, I had like 10 minutes shorter because of the mission trip report, which was great. Um, but I want to tie in last week's verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and today 8 through 20. And I, and I, I want to talk about some of the things that intersect where we are right now, maybe individually or as a church. Part of reading scripture is reading it and studying it for what it says. Digging deep into the word of God. And then learning how it applied to that culture and the history of it and, and the whole Jews and Gentiles and all that. But also, how does that apply to me? How does that apply to us as a church? So the first thing that's come, I got three points. First one I'm not going to spend a ton of time on. The other two a little bit longer. First thing that came to mind is this. Truth needs to be spoken in love. Paul is perplexed because he told the truth and now he feels like their enemy. It's tough to know when to say something, isn't it? I think we've all been there. I see this going on. Should I step in? Should I not? How much should I say? What does this look like? I have seen this go well and I have seen it tear families and relationships apart. We all have if we're honest. Ephesians 4, 15 says, we are going to speak the truth in love. Keep that up there for a few minutes. We're going to talk about this. And the verse prior to this command in Ephesians 4, 15, Paul writes about unity in the church. And he urges the Ephesians and all Christians by extension to live a life worthy of the calling you have received as believers. He, did, he says that in verse 1. 
of four. He describes this life as which one we are humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love and making efforts towards unity. And Paul reminds his readers that we all serve the same Lord and are part of the same body. And we all grow together in maturity as Christians. That's the ideal. But it doesn't happen all the time, does it? Oh, so many conversations I have about this. So many heartbreaks. So with that context, read this whole verse with me. Speaking the truth, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Ties right in with being fully formed, doesn't it? Rather than being spiritually immature, easily deceived, we are to speak the truth to one another with love so that all of us can grow in maturity as a body, as a family. Not running away when it gets hard. Growing together. We are to train one another in truth. The foundational gospel truths about who God is and what he has called us to do. Hard truths of correction. And our motivation is to do so in love. Love here is referred to agape love. A self-sacrificing type of love that works for the benefits of those that we love. We speak truth in order to build up. Because when we love one another, we speak the truth. Because we know the truth, we must be characterized by people that love the truth. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and this is in my notes. We also have to be people that can accept the truth. I always, when I was a youth pastor, I told, I would talk to the teens and say, I know, I can tell when you're becoming more mature when you can accept instruction from somebody in your life. That's the same thing with us as believers. If somebody comes to you in love and you hear what they're saying and your Holy Spirit's kind of working in you and you, you know there's some truth there, respond in love. Have a heart that's ready. Don't immediately put the walls up. Or maybe they come up immediately but then back away and say, how do I need to respond? Church, this is so important if we're going to keep moving forward and be in a church family that reaches this community with the gospel. Some of you have to have hard conversations with people. Speak the truth in love. Second way, circumstances cannot limit the power of the gospel. Say that with me. Circumstances. The gospel. Paul clearly tells them in this passage, I came to you with a bodily ailment. And it was a trial for these people. They had to care for him. We don't know what the details of it. So let's think about this. Paul came to them with something so critical that it affected them. Let's say that we're thinking about having a revival here and we invite a speaker. The speaker shows up on a a hospital bed attached to a bunch of different devices. You would look at me and say, Ryan, what are you doing? That's not going to be the best way to share the gospel. Paul 
Paul shows that when he showed up with the bodily ailment, it was a trial and it did not matter. The gospel still came in power. You see, the gospel, I'm just going to say this, like an uncaged lion. It does not need the right circumstances. We have to get this through our bones and our blood and our spirit. The church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, does not need a specific type of society to work. It does not need a specific political party to work. It just needs you to speak the words and to live the words. The church, the gospel, the Holy Spirit is not going anywhere. It will work anywhere. But we have convinced ourselves that it has to be this way or that way. It has to be air-conditioned or doesn't. Or whatever. Or we don't want to say something because we don't want to mess up what the Holy Spirit's doing. Or if I say this, what are they going to think about FPC? The Holy Spirit's big enough. He can handle that. Start speaking the truth. Start sharing the gospel. The gospel does not need any circumstances whatsoever to work. Now, there's things you can do, you know. You can invite people over. You can build friendships. You can have conversations. But we've got to do it. We talk about it. I talk about hospitality. How many of you had somebody over in the last month? We have to share and do. We don't have to wait for the right circumstances. The Philippian... I'm going to give you just a couple examples from Scripture. Some more evidence from Paul. If you know anything about Paul, when he goes somewhere, there is either a riot or a revival. He's either in jail or people are getting saved. And if he's in jail, people are still getting saved. And the church in Philippi, not the Galatian church we're studying, but the, Philipp, Philipp, the church in Philippi is worried that he's in prison. Our quarterback is on the sideline. Oh no, what's going to happen? And this is what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 12. Read it with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Say advance. Advance. Is it going backwards? It's moving forward. Paul's in prison. Doesn't matter. I have an ailment. Doesn't matter. I know the circumstances don't look very good, but God is moving forward with the gospel. It's advancing. The gospel is not bound. The gospel does not need an ism to work. It does not need the right legislation, the right environment. The gospel works where it's preached and lived out. Can I be any clearer? Want me to keep talking about it? We've got to start living this out. Listen, listen, listen to uh, what he says to Timothy. Paul, again, is probably in prison. And this time, he's in prison under Nero's reign. And when you're under, in prison under Nero, what's going to happen? It's a death sentence. Paul knows he's going to die. And first thing he says is, remember Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, oh, remember what Nero's going to do to me. Or remember what's happening in life. 
He says, remember Jesus Christ. He puts their focus on Jesus Christ. I'm sure he cares about what's happening to him, but he wants people to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Not bound by Paul's death sentence, not bound by Paul's ailment, not bound by Moses' inability to talk, not bound by the death of Naomi's husband, not bound by Matthew being a tax collector, not bound by your circumstances, whatever you would put in that blank. But Pastor Ryan, I've been divorced. Pastor Ryan, I've done this. The gospel's not bound. Right? And why is it not bound? Because Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over this universe. Sometimes we look around and we're like, it doesn't look like it. But he is Lord over this universe. Is he Lord over your heart? Is he Lord over your life? The gospel is not bound. And then the third thing I've been thinking about from the last two weeks' passages is never underestimate the power of God's deliverance. This, so I just spent... Thursday and Friday, locking myself in a room in Chicago, studying, basically planning out from now until Easter. My son's working in Chicago. We went and stayed with, down there this, for a couple of days to see him. And uh, I, I said, I'm going to spend Thursday and Friday where you sit at the pool, Stacy, and I'm going to work ahead. And this whole Galatians is about kind of this exodus, you know, this, this being free from slavery. In January, we're going to go to the book of Exodus. And we're going to go through Exodus like we just did Galatians. So it just it ties in so, so perfectly this, the deliverance of God as a people, as a church, and as individuals. So Paul says it very clearly back in Galatians 4, verse 4 through 5. And this was from last week. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, we sang about that, those who are under the law, so that we might receive Adoption as sons and daughters. He came to get us out of slavery. He came to give us freedom. We should celebrate that and should evaluate if that's happened in our lives and what that looks like. As a Christian and as your pastor, I want to ask this following question because I love you and I do not want to let go of any of you if you're slipping away or if you're in bondage. What may hinder you from experiencing God has for you? Or what is hindering you from experiencing this fullness of life, being fully formed in God, in Jesus Christ? What is hindering you? So what I'm going to share is not an exhaustive list, but I want the Holy Spirit to do a little bit of surgery in your life and in my life. One of the main points, ah, we'll skip that. The first thing that hinders us from all that God has is busyness. We fill our lives with so many things that we don't know how to rest in being sons or daughters of God. If you were in the worship Sunday school last week, you heard Pastor Dave and uh, Paula talk on this eloquently. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's so important one thing that they said is when you rest, you are ceasing which is necessary and embracing what gives life. Jesus wants to give life. Go home, 
Spend some time looking at your calendars and say, what is it that I got to stop doing? Or what is it that I need to change so that I can work on being fully formed in Christ? So that's the shortest point. Well, maybe the last one is too. The second thing I want to mention is stinking thinking. Psychologists call it negative self-talk. It's too late. I would love to walk with God, but it's too late. Life has sort of passed me by. I believe God's up there, but does he really want to help me out? It's just, it's too late. I've, I've, I've messed up. I'm sure some people have messed up, but you don't know how bad I've done. Can I have the next slide, please? You don't know how much I have done and the direction my life has gone. I really want to walk in deliverance with God, but I don't have what it takes. I know I should tell people about Jesus, but I'm an introvert. I don't even answer my phone. On, on Halloween, I turn the porch light on, put my candy out the door, and I shut the door, turn off the lights. I don't want to talk to people. I don't have what it takes. Paul's writing to a, a church in Corinth as well, and he's, he's, he's pulling on the Corinthian church. It's kind of a theme of Paul. He keeps, he keeps pulling. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Are you doing that in your life? Are you taking every thought captive and lining it up? I'm a son and daughter of Christ. I shouldn't be thinking that way. When you think it's too late, remember Lazarus. The King James Bible, I just love this. It says, he stinketh, for he's been dead for four days. I love that line. Jesus raised him from the dead. With God, it's never too late. He's a God of resurrection. We have to change the way that we think. The disciple Peter, he would talk to us and say, get in line. I denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus found me and says, go get him. I don't have what it takes. Nobody does. God does not call people that have it together. God calls people. And then he helps us get it together. He gives us capable power through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So I'm going to be vulnerable. i got a few minutes. The battle that God ha I had with God when he called me into ministry was epic. God, I'm not doing it. Okay, God says, I'm patient with you. Months later, somebody would say something. But Pastor Ryan, have you thought about ministry? Nope. A couple months later, a missionary would come. The heart would start stirring. One time, even on the way home, Stacy said, what are you going to do when you grow up? <laughs> right? Because she knew that wrestle that I had with God. I would give excuses. It's not happening, not happening. Okay, even more vulnerable. A few weeks ago after church, I went to my office and shut the door thinking that was the worst message that anybody has ever given at FBC. Why do these people even show up? You don't have to worry. I got myself back in line very quickly because I've learned over the years how to take every thought captive to Christ. I do not let it sit there. I'm a child, a son of God. Sometimes I wonder if we do more damage to ourselves experiencing all that God has for us because we can't say the things to ourselves which God tells us. 
We have to start believing and saying what God tells us. Your heavenly Father loves you. He loves you. He wants the best for you. The best for you is not what culture says is best. The best for you is to be fully formed in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. To be in the process of moving in that direction. God wants you to live and be everything he's created you to be. He wants you to go through difficulty with joy. He wants you to know how to suffer with praise. He wants you to grieve in a way that is healthy and brings glory to his name. He wants you to be able to see the miraculous and not get puffed up. He loves you. He loves you. Don't miss on living in the freedom that God has for you because you have stinking thinking. Number three, how about this? Unrepentant sin. Somebody just looked at their watch. You done yet, Pastor? Let me try to put this in language that's not Christianese. Unrepentant sin, sins means that you have not made up your mind that God's way is the right way or the best way, and you keep missing his mark. You keep missing his mark of holiness because I know what I want to do. And you don't surrender your heart and your whole life to the lordship of Christ. The word repent means to change your mind. Agree with God. The word miss your mark we talked about last week is like an archery term where you miss the mark. There are many believers, even sitting right here in this room, and times in my life where I miss living in all the things that God has for me because I don't want to do it God's way. Unrepentant sin. Please have a heart that's willing to repent. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2, or Romans 2, 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you away from sin? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God knows the way that seems right, but yet we think we know better than he does. I'm so glad God is patient. How's God being patient in your life? What sin in your life needs to be repented of? Because look at verse 5. Of Galatians 2 5. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteousness will be revealed. God desires that we all live in freedom and victory. But sometimes we dig in and say, I'm not going to give in. Please hear my heart as a pastor who loves you. You are missing out. And God's very best for you. Next one. How about idols? Idols. Paul says right here in Galatians 4, 8, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Those are idols. How many things in our life do we idolize before God? If you want to know what has your heart, find the things that make you go tick, tick, boom in two seconds. But you flip on the TV and something just irks you so bad. Sometimes it's a holy passion, but often it's an idol that's in your heart. Or for me, we're busy the morning. You can't go fishing. Ah! The idols that I've had to lay down over the years. 
Jesus wants to have all of our hearts and all of our affection, all of our heart and all of our affection. We can still have hobbies and hobby horses, but they need to be bringing glory to God. And it needs to be about him and not about ourselves. Idols will keep us from walking in the fullness of God. How about unforgiveness? This is a tough one. Forgiveness is tough. But if my Savior can hang on a cross, suffering excruciating pain, and utter these words, Father, forgive them, I think the least we can do is to offer forgiveness and walk in forgiveness. Matthew 6, 15 says this, But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Oh, that's so much to unpack there. We don't have time to. But just let that know that if you are not have a spirit of forgiveness, you are not walking in what God has for you. And it's hurting you worse than it's hurting that other person. Hardness and bitterness and emptiness. Forgiveness leads to being fully formed in Christ. How about obedience or lack of obedience? I'm convinced that most people that sit in the pew know way more about the Bible than they lead on to sometimes. They know that when they're doing something that God says, "Uh uh-uh, this is not the best for you, but they turn an an eye away from it. So I want to walk the way I want to walk. Obedience is a real sign of Christian maturity. It's not how many small groups you've led. It's not how much money you give on a Sunday morning or even how many times you show up here in a month. It's are you walking in obedience in every area of your life? Jesus did not say, blessed if you've been around church your whole life. He says this in John 13, verse 17. Do I have the next slide? Nope, I don't have it there. Okay, this is what it says in John 13, 17. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Obedience shows Christian maturity. And we'll end with this one, because this has been a hard one for me at times. Lack of prayer. Lack of prayer. Please don't think I'm being snarky or giving you a hard time. I'm speaking to myself too. And not putting a list of things on you that you have to do. These things come out of a heart that has been fully given to the Lord. A heart that's willing to be moldable and and formed into his likeness. You know why I'm so big on this? Because God commands it. But I also want everyone at FBC to truly walk in what God has given them. Truly walk in what Jesus wants you to be. I know that if we start living that way and walking that way, Jesus will start pouring out of us and spilling out of us, and he'll start rolling down Tyler Avenue down to downtown, and he'll start rolling out of us into the schools. But we've got to be the people that the Spirit leads to be fully formed people of Jesus Christ. I want that for individuals, but boy, do I want that for our church family. I really believe FBC's best days are ahead. God is bringing us people that just blows my mind what he's doing, the conversations that I get to be a part of. It's up to you, church. Are you willing to do the hard things to become fully formed followers of Jesus Christ? Let me pray. Father, you are so good. I want this to be a place where circumstances don't move us, 
where circumstances are just an opportunity for the gospel to come in action. But first, the gospel has to be real in our own life. Not just I prayed a prayer, but that, that, but that I have entered into the gospel through faith. And now I'm living that story with the rest of my life as my life is being fully formed in Jesus. Working me as a pastor here, working Dave and Stucky. Show us the areas that we lack so we can lead this family, this, this flock, in the way that you have asked us to. And then may the people here as well, Father, respond. Each and every one in their own way. Take, take what you're doing in their life. May they have hearts that hear the truth and hearts that are willing to be fully formed in you. Because God, we know this passage that Paul will not let go. But I know without a shadow of a doubt that God, you will never let go. That you hold on as tight as anything else. And I, as a pastor, want to hold on tight as well to leave scars in a good way. So, Father, work. Pour your Holy Spirit in new, fresh ways. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. Thank you for letting us be the people of your children. In your precious name we pray. Amen.